Lessons from an Obscure Savior. Number six in the Judges series. This is an exposition of Judges chapter 3, verse 31. This message by Pastor Rod Harris was delivered at Trinity Baptist Church on Sunday morning, May the 23rd, 2021. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to give praise and glory to you. And Father, I pray that as we gather about your word that you will open it to us, that we might be nourished and fed and encouraged and strengthened to be the people you desire us to be. Father, as you speak, may we hear and may we heed the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We all have that friend that, bless their heart, they just can't tell a story. Because they can't tell you the whole thing. It's like pulling teeth to get the information out of them. You, you find yourself in a conversation with that friend and you're always saying, and, and, the conversation goes something like this. Hey, did you hear about Fred? No. He's dead. And he died. Had he been sick? No. And how did he? What happened? Oh, that was a terrible accident. Freak. And it's exasperating. It's exhausting. And sometimes when I'm reading the scripture, I find myself saying, and, now don't give me the spiritual look, you do it too. <laughs> yeah, those times you're reading along in a passage and it stops and it's like, well, what's, what happened? Tell me the rest of it. It, it seems incomplete. It's, you piqued my interest. Now, tell me what happened. This morning's text is one of those. We're in that period of the judges, that time when there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. We're considering the gracious work of God in saving his wayward people. We've watched the cycle or the downward spiral where the people fell into apostasy and God brought judgment and they cried out to God and God raised up a deliverer and he saved them again and again. But not here. That, that doesn't happen in this text. There's no mention of apostasy. There's no mention that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There, there's no word about God bringing judgment upon his people. There's no word about God raising up a judge. None of that is in the text. This brief, quirky story about a man killing 600 Philistines with an ox goat. After him, Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goat, and he also saved Israel. And? I mean, isn't that what you want to say? I mean, that's the whole story. That, that's all of it. No prologue. No epilogue. That's it. Oh, there is one other mention in chapter 5 and verse 6. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, 
In the day of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. That's it. It's the whole of the story. Again, this is one of those texts that make you question the Apostle Paul. When he said that all scripture is breathed of God and profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. Makes you want to say, did he read Judges? Is, is he familiar with this text? Because what, what do we learn from this? How, how does this train us? How does this equip us so that we are thoroughly equipped to the good work that God has given to us? This is the first story of one of the minor judges. The book of Judges tells the story of 12 judges, six major, six minor. And major and minor has to do with the the length of the story, not their worth or value. It's not a matter that six are just minor. They're not so important as people and their stories don't matter. It's just there's not a lot of detail. And here's the first one, and it's one verse. Now, granted, the other minor judges, their stories are much more substantial. Some of those are up to three verses long. What do we learn from this story? The truth is, this is one of those passages It would be real easy to skip over it completely or just give a token mention either at the end of the last judge or before moving on to the next one. And to be honest with you, that's what I wanted to do. But I think there's more here. I think there's something important for us even in this small, meager account. Something for us to teach us about the working of our God. In fact, as we think about this one verse, the obscure, meager account of Shamgar's judgeship manages to provide profound insight into the working of our God. I know it's just one verse, and I know there's not a lot of detail, and I know there's a lot of questions, but I'm convinced that we learned something about the profound working of our God. How so? I'm glad you asked. There are three things I want to share with you from this text. First of all, the story of Shamgar serves to remind us of the certainty and clarity of God's gracious work of salvation while maintaining the unsearchable nature of his ways. There is something here for us about the fact that God is at work saving, that God is at work delivering, that God is gracious in his work for us, and we can be certain of that, and yet his ways are unsearchable. His character is unfathomable. It was William Cooper, the English poet, who said, God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. And that's certainly true as we work our way through the book of Judges. The constant message throughout the book of Judges is the salvation of our God. Israel is persistent in sin, repeatedly violating the covenant and going after other gods, and yet the covenant God of Israel remains ever faithful. Raising up a deliverer to save his wayward people. As we witness that cycle, that that downward spiral into ever-increasing depravity, 
moving further and further away from God, we keep asking ourselves, will they never learn? And we also keep asking, why does God keep bailing them out? Why can't they learn? And why does God continue to save? Both the certainty and the uncertainty of our knowledge of God. Why does God keep saving? Well, it's because of the covenant. Because God's in covenant relationship with Israel. Wonderful. But why is God in covenant relationship with Israel? Well, it's certainly not because they're the largest or the brightest or the most faithful or the most lovable people on the planet. It's because God has chosen to set his love upon them. God has chosen to love an unlovable and an unlovely people. It comes out of his own great heart and there is profound mystery involved. His ways are mysterious. Why do you do it that way? Why do he use that individual? Why did he use that nation? Why does God do what he does in the way that he does it? Well, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says, Where is the one who is wise? Where, where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom it's all part of the point. The unknowable nature of God and yet the certainty of his salvation. The mystery of God's working is powerfully driven home in Judges chapter 3 with this story of Shamgar. This text raises all kinds of questions and it doesn't answer any of them. Not any real answer. What we do know is that Shamgar saved Israel, that connects him to all those other judges. And it also connects him with the truth declared in chapter 2 and verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plunder them. In our text, this man appears from nowhere and he disappears as quickly, leaving no trace other than that one mentioned in chapter 5. Now his story comes at the end of the story of Ehud and just before the mention of Ehud's death. So we assume that he's a contemporary. He's, he's alive during that same period of time. This probably took place during that 80 years of rest. We also know that Ehud's dealings was with the Moabites, which are along the eastern border of Israel's land. They're Israel's territory. Shamgar deals with the Philistines, which is on the opposite side, along the plain, along that area that we now know as the Gaza Strip. 
And in our text, we meet for the first time in the book of Judges, the Philistines. This is the beginning of conflict with Israel. It's going to carry on for the next 200 plus years. They have various levels of intensity over that time, but they will come to be seen as Israel's chief adversary in Canaan. There is a reference to these folks earlier, just they weren't called by name. Back in chapter 1 and verse 19, that was that pesky group with the chariots of iron that they were unable to drive out. This is the first time we have direct contact with them. So, of course, we got a question. Who is this man? Who is this Shamgar? I have no idea. We don't know anything about his background. We don't know anything of his origin. We don't know anything about his marital status. We don't know anything about his occupation. We know his name. But even that raises questions. Shamgar, that's a foreign name. But what does that mean? Does that mean that God sovereignly chose to use a non-Israelite to save his people? Is this an indication that things had gotten so bad in Israel that there wasn't an Israelite that he could use? He had to use some foreigner? Is that the meaning? Is, is that what we can take away from this? Or is it simply a matter that through this intermarrying of the peoples, they become so muddled and so confused, he's an Israelite, but he's got a Canaanite name? We don't know. Well, we know he's the son of Anath. But is that his mother's name? Because it's female. That's unusual to, in the Old Testament, attribute someone by the descent of the mother. It's usually the son of and meaning the father. So maybe Anath isn't his mother's name. Maybe he's from Anath over in in Galilee. Well, maybe. Or maybe he's connected with the goddess Anath, the warrior goddess of the Canaanite. So maybe son of Anath means he he was a battle warrior, a powerful man, a part of this elite group of soldiers. But we don't know. It's all speculation. So really, we don't know anything. Except, we know with certainty that he saved Israel. That he was used of God to deliver God's people. What about his weapon of choice? An ox goat? I mean, a long stick with a point on the end that you use to prod reluctant animals along, particularly oxen as they plow the field. He used that, and he killed 600 Philistines. Was that in one battle, or was that over a lifetime, or was that, we don't know. Well, Pastor, I'm, I'm glad I came this morning to... Not learn a thing. I I came so you could tell me, here's this really important text. We learn important lessons. We don't know anything. Is that the lesson? No. Again, the lesson is, we know with certainty that God used him 
to save Israel. The point is the certainty of God's love for his people and the certainty that God will deliver his people, but he does so in a way that preserves his unsearchable nature. You can't figure him out. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We know that he belongs in the same category as Ehud and all these other judges in the book. And we know that ultimately, it is God who saves. It is God who is responsible. Yes, this whole story and really the whole book of Judges is like God himself shrouded in mystery. There are things unknown and things unknowable. But not everything is unknowable. We know God because God has made himself known. We know God because he has revealed himself. And we know certain things about the saving work of our God because he has made it abundantly clear to us. He has spoken clearly and directly to us. He has revealed himself, making himself known in creation, in his saving acts, in a real world, and through his word. In his word, he said, this is who I am, and this is what I've done. He is knowable. The mystery of godliness, that is the plan of God and salvation through Christ, has been revealed. So Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we confess the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. In other words, God is near, and yet He's far. God is close to us, and yet He is transcendent. Oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? God has made certain things clear. And one of the things he's made abundantly clear is that he is a saving God. And that we rest in and count upon and trust in this merciful, saving God. And yet he is unknowable and mysterious, and transcendent, and above and beyond us. The point is this. He will not fit in your box. I don't care how big your box is, and I don't care how your box is shaped. He will not fit. You can't ultimately say, I've got him all figured out. He is beyond us. So in this story, we are reminded of the certainty and the clarity of God's saving work while preserving the unsearchable nature of his ways. There's a second thing. Our God's use of this obscure figure, Shamgar, underscores the fact that his ways are not our ways and assures us of his ability and desire to use even the likes of us for his glory. 
In Shamgar, the basic facts of the Christian gospel are clear. But it doesn't take away the mystery. We're left to stand in awe and wonder of God's work. To stand amazed by the strange working of God to accomplish his purpose. I mean, who would have thought it? Who would have thought that this unnamed person, this obscure man that comes from who knows where, who did who knows what, that God used in a strange way with an ox goat to slay 600 Philistines and somehow save Israel? How strange is that? Well, it's almost as strange as the notion of the eternal one. Veiled in infant flesh, laying in a manger. Who would have thought that? Who would have have conceived of salvation in that way? Or a crucified Messiah. The anointed one of God. The unique savior of the world. Butchered and nailed to a cross. Tortured, humiliated, spit upon. How can God die? How does the God-man die? We can do nothing but stand in awe and wonder of the glorious revelation. Of this profound mystery. God's saving work. Further. We should bow in humble submission. Before this demonstration of God's use. Of such an obscure man to save his people. We ought to be encouraged by that. Because what it reminds us is that. No one is too obscure or tainted for God to use. That means there's hope for you and for me. And our God delights to use the most unlikely for his glory. Shamgar with an ox goat. A left-handed man, Ehud. Or a hesitant Gideon. Or the outcast Jephthah. Or even a wild man named Samson. Here again the Apostle Paul. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring about things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Or as Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 12, But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, I think there's some valuable lessons for us. Take heart, dear Christian. God wants to use you for his glory. And it's not about your ability. It's not about your faithfulness. It's about his grace. It's about his sovereign choice of you as an instrument for his glory. Rest assured, we can be absolutely certain of the great, glorious, saving work of our God by understanding that he is mysterious beyond our understanding and be encouraged that he desires to use the most obscure for his glory. One last thing. Our God's use of Shamgar to maintain the 80-year rest secured by Yehu foreshadows the eternal rest secured by the Lord Jesus. Because he's mentioned at the end of the story of Ehud, before the mention of Ehud's death, I think it's right to assume that this took place during that 80-year period of rest. It also means that there was a threat to the rest that was secured. But God sovereignly used Shamgar to save Israel, that is to secure the rest. Reminding us that the rest secured by the judges was a limited rest. It is a partial rest pointing to something greater. Eighty years is a substantial time, but not in in light of eternity. There remains something greater. And we heard it read earlier in the service from Hebrews chapter 4. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter in because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, as in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then... There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There remains for the people of God a rest that will not need emergency intervention. A rest that will not depend upon another Savior, but one that is forever secured through the person of the Lord Jesus, who has secured it to a point beyond Satan's power to condemn us. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Here's how Romans 8 ends. 
So who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding before us. And then he goes on to say, nothing, height, depth, nor any created thing is capable of separating us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, said, I would rather live in Romans chapter 8 than the Garden of Eden. Because in the Garden of Eden, there's still the possibility I could fall. But in Romans 8, I'm hemmed in. I'm hemmed in on one side by there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I'm hemmed in on the other. Nothing can ever separate me from the love of God. There is a rest for the people of God that is eternally secure. In Christ, through the gospel, we are justified. That is, we are forever saved from the penalty of sin. In Christ, through the gospel, we are being sanctified. That is, we are being saved from the power of sin. Through the gospel, we will be glorified when we will be forever delivered from the presence of sin as we enter into the eternal state with our God. There remains for us a lasting rest secured by our Savior. Oh, there's much to be learned in the Old Testament gospel book of Judges. It's a gospel story from beginning to end. It's the story of God's grace and God's love for a wayward people. And therein is our only hope. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the glory and the wonder of the gospel. I thank you for what you have revealed to us, what you have made known to us about your person, your mercy, your grace, your saving work. And Lord, we stand in awe and wonder of the greatness of your person because it's so far beyond what you've revealed. What you have revealed is glorious and wonderful. But it's still shrouded in mystery. Because you are eternal. You are infinite. You are the creator. And we are the creature. Thus, very finite, very limited. Lord, teach us to live in the tension 
of the revealed and the unrevealed. In the glory and wonder and certainty of our salvation in Christ and of the unsearchable ways of our God. Encourage us with the knowledge of your ability and your desire to use even the most obscure person for your glory. And teach us to rest in that eternal rest secured for us in the person of the Lord Jesus. May the truths, the lessons of this text guide our steps in the days to come as we seek to live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the TBC Tulsa podcast, which features the preaching ministry of Pastor Rod Harris at Trinity Baptist Church, located at the corner of 41st and Union in Tulsa, Oklahoma. To learn more about Trinity Baptist Church, visit us on the web at www.tbctulsa.org.